Chapters 8 through 12 of Of Peace of Mind by Lucius Aeneas Seneca, translated by Aubrey Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Of Peace of Mind by Lucius Aeneas Seneca, translated by Aubrey Stewart. Chapters 8 through 12. Chapter 8. Let us now pass on to the consideration of property, that most fertile source of human sorrows. For if you compare all the other ills from which we suffer, deaths, sicknesses, fears, regrets, endurance of pains and labors, with those miseries which our money inflicts upon us, the latter will far outweigh all the others. Reflect, then, how much less a grief it is, never to have had any money than to have lost it. We shall thus understand that the less poverty has to lose, the less torment it has with which to inflict us. For you are mistaken if you suppose that the rich bear their losses with greater spirit than the poor. A wound causes the same amount of pain to the greatest and the smallest body. It was a neat saying of Bion's, that it hurts bald men as much as hairy men to have their hairs pulled out you may be assured that the same thing is true of rich and poor people that their suffering is equal for their money clings to both classes and cannot be torn away without their feeling it yet it is more endurable as i have said and easier not to gain property than to lose it and therefore you will find that those upon whom fortune has never smiled are more cheerful than those whom she has deserted diogenes a man of infinite spirit perceived this and made it impossible that anything should be taken away from him call this security from loss poverty want necessity or any contemptuous name you please i shall consider such a man to be happy unless you find me another who can lose nothing if i am not mistaken it is a royal attribute among so many misers sharpers and robbers to be the one man who cannot be injured if any one doubts the happiness of diogenes he would doubt whether the position of the immortal gods was one of sufficient happiness because they have no farms or gardens no valuable estates let to strange tenants and no large loans in the money market are you not ashamed of yourself you who gaze upon riches with astonished admiration look upon the universe you will see the gods quite bare of property and possessing nothing though they give everything do you think that this man who has stripped himself of all fortuitous accessories is a pauper or one like to the immortal gods do you call demetrius pompeius's freedman a happier man he who was not ashamed to be richer than pompeius who was daily furnished with a list of the number of his slaves as a general is with that of his army though he had long deserved that all his riches should consist of a pair of underlings and a roomier cell than the other slaves but diogenes's only slave ran away from him and when he was pointed out to diogenes he did not think him worth fetching back it is a shame he said that manus should be able to live without diogenes and that diogenes should not be able to live without manus he seems to me to have said fortune mind your own business diogenes has nothing left that belongs to you did my slave run away nay he went away from me as a free man 
a household of slaves requires food and clothing the bellies of so many hungry creatures have to be filled we must buy raiment for them we must wash their most thievish hands and we must make use of the services of people who weep and execrate us how far happier is he who is indebted to no man for anything except what he can deprive himself of with the greatest of ease since we however have not such strength of mind as this we ought at any rate to diminish the extent of our property in order to be less exposed to the assaults of fortune those men whose bodies can be within the shelter of their armor are more fitted for war than those whose huge size everywhere extends beyond it and exposes them to wounds the best amount of property to have is that which is enough to keep us from poverty and which yet is not far removed from it chapter nine we shall be pleased with this measure of wealth if we have previously taken pleasure in thrift without which no riches are sufficient and with which none are insufficient especially as the remedy is always at hand and poverty itself by calling in the aid of thrift can convert itself into riches let us accustom ourselves to set aside mere outward show and to measure things by their uses not by their ornamental trappings let our hunger be tamed by food our thirst quenched by drinking our lust confined within needful bounds let us learn to use our limbs to arrange our dress and way of life according to what was approved of by our ancestors not in imitation of new-fangled models let us learn to increase our continence to repress luxury to set bounds to our pride to assuage our anger to look upon poverty without prejudice to practice thrift albeit many are ashamed to do so to apply cheap remedies to the wants of nature to keep all undisciplined hopes and aspirations as it were under lock and key and to make it our business to get our riches from ourselves and not from fortune we never can thoroughly defeat the vast diversity and malignity of misfortune with which we are threatened as not to feel the weight of many gusts if we offer a large spread of canvas to the wind we must draw our affairs into a small compass to make the darts of fortune of no avail for this reason sometimes slight mishaps have turned into remedies and more serious disorders have been healed by slighter ones when the mind pays no attention to good advice and cannot be brought to its senses by milder measures why should we not think that its interests are being served by poverty disgrace or financial ruin being applied to it one evil is balanced by another let us teach ourselves to be able to dine without all rome to look on to be the slaves of fewer slaves to get clothes which fulfill their original purpose and to live in a smaller house the inner curve is the one to take not only in running races and in the contests of the circus but also in the race of life even literary pursuits the most becoming thing for a gentleman to spend money upon are only justifiable as long as they are kept within bounds what is the use of possessing numerous books and libraries whose titles their owner can hardly read through a lifetime a student is overwhelmed by such a mass not instructed and it is much better to devote yourself to a few writers than to skim through many forty thousand books were burned at alexandria some would have praised this library as a most noble memorial of royal wealth like titus livius who says that it was 
a splendid result of the taste and attentive care of kings. It had nothing to do with taste or care, but was a piece of learned luxury, nay, not even learned, since they amassed it, not for the sake of learning, but to make a show, like many men who know less about letters than a slave is expected to know, and who uses his books not to help him in his studies, but to ornament his dining-room. Let a man, then, obtain as many books as he wants, but none for show. It is more respectable, say you, to spend one's money on such books than on vases of Corinthian brass and paintings. Not so. Everything that is carried to excess is wrong. What excuses can you find for a man who is eager to buy bookcases of ivory and citrus wood to collect the works of unknown or discredited authors? and who sits yawning amid so many thousands of books, whose backs and titles please him more than any other part of them? Thus in the houses of the laziest men, you will see the works of all the orators and historians stacked up upon bookshelves, reaching right up to the ceiling. At the present day a library has become as necessary an appendage to a house as a hot and cold bath. I would excuse them straight away, if they really were carried away by an excessive zeal for literature. But as it is, these costly works of sacred genius, with all the illustrations that adorn them, are merely bought for display and to serve as wall furniture. Chapter 10. Suppose, however, that your life has become full of trouble, and without knowing what you are doing, you have fallen into a snare which either public or private fortune has set for you, and that you can neither untie it nor break it. Then remember that fettered men suffer much at first from the burdens and clogs upon their legs. Afterwards, when they have made up their minds not to fret themselves about them, but to endure them, necessity teaches them to bear them bravely, and habit to bear them easily. In every station of life you will find amusements, relaxations, and enjoyments. That is, provided you will be willing to make light of evils rather than to hate them. Knowing to what sorrows we were born, there is nothing for which nature more deserves our thanks than for having invented habit as an alleviation of misfortune, which soon accustoms us to the severest evils. No one could hold out against misfortune, if it permanently exercised the same force as at its first onset. We are all chained to fortune. Some men's chain is loose and made of gold, that of others is tight and of meaner metal. But what difference does this make? We are all included in the same captivity, and even those who have bound us are bound themselves, unless you think that a chain on the left side is lighter to bear. One man may be bound by public office, another by wealth. Some have to bear the weight of illustrious, some of humble birth. Some are subject to the command of others, some only to their own. Some are kept in one place by being banished thither, others by being elected to the priesthood. All life is slavery. Let each man therefore reconcile himself to his lot, complain of it as little as possible, and lay hold of whatever good lies within his reach. No condition can be so wretched that an impartial mind can find no compensations in it. Small sites, if ingeniously divided, may be made use of for many different purposes, and arrangement will render ever so narrow a room habitable. Call good sense to your aid against difficulties. It is possible to soften what is harsh, to widen what is too narrow, 
and to make heavy burdens press less severely upon one who bears them skillfully. Moreover, we ought not to allow our desires to wander far afield, but we must make them confine themselves to our immediate neighborhood, since they will not endure to be altogether locked up. We must leave alone things which either cannot come to pass, or can only be effected with difficulty, and allow after such things as are near at hand, and within reach of our hopes, always remembering that all things are equally unimportant, and that though they have a different outward appearance, they are all alike empty within. Neither let us envy those who are in high places. The heights which look lofty to us are steep and rugged. Again, those whom unkind fate has placed in critical situations will be safer if they show as little pride in their proud position as may be, and do all they are able to bring down their fortunes to the level of other men's. There are many who must needs cling to their high pinnacle of power, because they cannot descend from it save by falling headlong. Yet they assure us that their greatest burden is being obliged to be burdensome to others, and that they are nailed to their lofty post rather than raised to it. Let them, by dispensing justice, clemency, and kindness with an open and liberal hand, provide themselves with assistance to break their fall, and looking forward to this, maintain their position more hopefully. Yet nothing sets us free from these alternations of hope and fear, so well as always fixing some limit to our successes, and not allowing fortune to choose when to stop our career, but to halt of our own accord long before we apparently need do so. By acting thus, certain desires will rouse up our spirits, and yet being confined within bounds, will lead us not to embark on vast and vague enterprises. Chapter 11. These remarks of mine apply only to imperfect, commonplace, and unsound natures, not to the wise man, who needs not to walk with timid and cautious gait. For he has such confidence in himself that he does not hesitate to go directly in the teeth of fortune, and never will give way to her. Nor indeed has he any reason for fearing her, for he counts not only chattels, property, and high office, but even his body, his eyes, his hands, and everything whose use makes life dearer to us, nay, even his very self, to be things whose possession is uncertain. He lives as though he had borrowed them, and is ready to return them cheerfully whenever they are claimed. Yet he does not hold himself cheap, because he knows that he is not his own, but performs all his duties as carefully and prudently, as a pious and scrupulous man would take care of property left in his charge as trustee. When he is bidden to give them up, he will not complain of fortune, but will say, I thank you for what I have had possession of. I have managed your property so as largely to increase it, but since you order me, I give it back to you and return it willingly and thankfully. If you still wish me to own anything of yours, I will keep it for you. If you have other views, I restore into your hands and make restitution of all my wrought and coined silver, my house and my household. Should nature recall what she previously entrusted us with, let us say to her also, Take back my spirit, which is better than when you gave it me. I do not shuffle or hang back. Of my own free will I am ready to return what you gave me, before I could think. Take me away. What hardship can there be in returning to the place from whence one came? 
A man cannot live well if he knows not how to die well. We must, therefore, take away from this commodity its original value, and count the breath of life as a cheap matter. We dislike gladiators, says Cicero, if they are eager to save their lives by any means whatever. But we look favorably upon them if they are openly reckless of them. You may be sure that the same thing occurs with us. We often die because we are afraid of death. Fortune, which regards our lives as a show in the arena for her own enjoyment, says, Why should I spare you, base and cowardly creature that you are? You will be pierced and hacked with all the more wounds because you know not how to offer your throat to the knife. Whereas you, who receive the stroke without drawing away your neck or putting up your hands to stop it, shall both live longer and die more quickly. He who fears death will never act as becomes a living man, but he who knows that this fate was laid upon him as soon as he was conceived will live according to it, and by this strength of mind will gain this further advantage, that nothing can befall him unexpectedly. For by looking forward to everything which can happen as though it would happen to him, he takes the sting out of all evils, which can make no difference to those who expect it and are prepared to meet it. Evil only comes hard upon those who have lived without giving it a thought, and whose attention has been exclusively directed to happiness. Disease, captivity, disaster, conflagration, are none of them unexpected. I always knew with what disorderly company nature had associated me. The dead have been often wailed for in my neighborhood. The torch and taper have often been borne past my door, before the buyer of one who has died before his time. The crash of falling buildings has often resounded by my side. Night has snatched away many of those with whom I have become intimate in the forum, the senate house, and in society, and has sundered the hands which were joined in friendship. Ought I to be surprised if the dangers which have always been circling around me at last assail me? How large a part of mankind never think of storms when about to set sail? I shall never be ashamed to quote a good saying because it comes from a bad author. Publiblius, who was a more powerful writer than any of our other playwrights, whether comic or tragic, whenever he chose to rise above farcical absurdities and speeches addressed to the gallery, among many other verses too noble even for tragedy, let alone for comedy, has this one. What one hath suffered may befall us all. If a man takes this into his inmost heart, and looks upon all the misfortunes of other men, of which there is always a great plenty, in this spirit, remembering that there is nothing to prevent their coming upon him also, he will arm himself against them long before they attack him. It is too late to school the mind to endurance of peril after peril has come. I did not think this would happen, and, would you ever have believed that this would have happened, you say? but why should it not? Where are the riches after which want, hunger, and beggary do not follow? What office is there whose purple robe, augur staff, and patrician reins have not as their accompaniment rags and banishment, the brand of infamy, a thousand disgraces, and utter reprobation? What kingdom is there for which ruin, trampling underfoot, a tyrant or a butcher, are not ready at hand? Nor are these matters divided by long periods of time, but there is but the space of an hour between sitting on the throne ourselves 
and clasping the knees of someone else as suppliants. Know then that every station of life is transitory, and that what has ever happened to anybody may happen to you also. You are wealthy. Are you wealthier than Pompeius? Yet when Gaius, his old relative and new host, opened Caesar's house to him in order that he might close his own, he lacked both bread and water. Though he owned so many rivers which both rose and discharged themselves within his dominions, yet he had to beg for drops of water. He perished of hunger and thirst in the palace of his relative, while his heir was contracting for a public funeral for one who was in want of food. You have filled public offices. Were they either as important, as unlooked for, or as all-embracing as those of Sejanus? Yet on the day on which the Senate disgraced him, the people tore him to pieces. The executioner could find no part large enough to drag to the Tiber, of one upon whom gods and men had showered all that could be given to man. You are a king. I will not bid you to go to Croesus for an example. He who while yet alive saw his funeral pyre both lighted and extinguished, being made to outlive not only his kingdom, but even his own death nor to Jugurtha, whom the people of Rome beheld as a captive within the year in which they had feared him. We have seen Ptolemaeus, king of Africa, and Mithridates, king of Armenia, under the charge of Gaius's guards. The former was sent into exile, the latter chose it in order to make his exile more honorable. Among such continual topsy-turvy changes, unless you expect that whatever can happen will happen to you, you give adversity power against you, a power which can be destroyed by anyone who looks at it beforehand. Chapter 12. The next point to these will be to take care that we do not labor for what is vain, or labor in vain. That is to say, neither to desire what we are not able to obtain, nor yet, having obtained our desire too late, and after much toil to discover the folly of our wishes. In other words, that our labor may not be without result, and that the result may not be unworthy of our labor. For as a rule, sadness arises from one of these two things, either from want of success, or from being ashamed of having succeeded. We must limit the running to and fro, which men practice, rambling about houses, theaters, and marketplaces. They mind other men's business, and always seem as though they themselves had something to do. If you ask one of them, as he comes out of his own door, Whither are you going? He will answer, By Hercules, I do not know, but I shall see some people and do something. They wander purposely seeking for something to do, and do not what they have made up their minds to do, but what has casually fallen in their way. They move uselessly and without any plan, just like ants crawling over bushes, which creep up to the top and then down to the bottom again without gaining anything. Many men spend their lives in exactly the same fashion, which one may call a state of restless indolence. You would pity some of them when you see them running as if their house was on fire. They actually jostle all whom they meet, and hurry along themselves and others with them, though all the while they are, are going to salute someone who will not return their greeting, or to attend the funeral of someone whom they did not know. They are going to hear the verdict on one who often goes to law, or to see the wedding of one who often gets married. They will follow a man's litter, and in some places will even carry it, 
afterwards returning home weary with idleness, they swear that they themselves do not know why they went out, or where they have been, and on the following day they will wander through the same round again. Let their work, therefore, have some purpose, and keep some object in view. These restless people are not made restless by labor, but are driven out of their minds by mistaken ideas. For even they do not put themselves in motion without any hope. They are excited by the outward appearance of something, and their crazy mind cannot see its futility. In the same way, every one of those who walk out to swell the crowd in the streets is led round the city by worthless and empty reasons. The dawn drives him forth, although he has nothing to do, and after he has pushed his way into many men's doors, and saluted their nomenclators one after the other, and been turned away from many others, he finds that the most difficult person of all to find at home is himself. From this evil habit comes the worst of all vices, tale-bearing and prying into public and private secrets, and the knowledge of many things which is neither safe to tell nor safe to listen to. End of chapters 8 through 12